My beloved Uncle John, 15 years my senior, uh, died a number of years ago in his early 60s. He was a fisheries biologist. I love that man mm, more than any of my other family members. He didn't know the Lord. And I was grieved, deeply grieved, when um, just days before he passed, I called, talked with his wife, and uh, looked to arrange one last time to get together. And I was denied that opportunity. His wife said, John knows what you wanted to talk about, and he wasn't interested. Oh, that hurt. There are so many things about John that I loved, I cherish, even to this day. When I was a preteen, he invited me out to his place. We were living in Idaho. And he was um, going to Oregon State and working on an advanced degree as a fisheries biologist. He took me out to his lab in the middle of the Willamette Valley somewhere. I don't know where that was. Um, And he taught me how to use a biological classification system. In a word, he taught me about bugs. Now, I was quickly informed that uh, to refer to all insects as bugs is unscientific and inappropriate. Because there are some insects that are bugs. They're true bugs, but not all bugs, not all insects are bugs. I he fired a, a passion within my soul to understand insects. And I captured many, and I euthanized just as many. And I mounted them, and I displayed them, and I built, I built countless boxes to display all of the insects I had captured. Uh, probably the most that I, that I uh, uh, captured and the, the, the vast bulk of my study was, was with beetles. But the ones that I liked the most were the butterflies. The butterfly is so amazing among God's creatures. They, they are, the, they are the, the, the poster child, if you will, of complete metamorphosis, where there is a complete and absolute transformation of form. Mommy butterfly lays an egg. And that, leg, that egg, uh, it, uh, from that egg, emerges a um, fat wingless, worm-like critter that crawls around and eats voraciously and then does something unimaginable. 
It forms a chrysalis around its body, and the entire caterpillar liquefies. The skin and the mouth and the eyes and the feet of the caterpillar turn into liquid caterpillar soup. And then a few of the cells join together and they become wings. And a few other cells come together and they begin to form legs. And others form antenna, and others form an eye. And eventually, out from, of, of, of this chrysalis comes a beautiful yet fragile butterfly. It's absolutely astonishing the kind of transformation that takes place from egg to caterpillar to butterfly. Does that happen by chance? Not a chance. It was intentionally designed that way by its creator. The butterfly is but a foretaste. It is but an embryonic picture of the kind of amazing unimaginable, far greater transformation that takes place in the soul of every believer. Well, you can't see what happens in the soul. Oh, but you can see the transformation that takes place in that person's life. We're in... John chapter 17 this morning. What what Bible teachers call Jesus' high priestly prayer. It has three sections. We've looked at the section where Jesus prays for himself. The second section, which we started last week, we will finish this morning, Lord willing, talks about, uh, Jesus talks to the Father about his disciples. Now, primarily, Jesus has in mind the 11 that are standing before him. You remember, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had dinner that evening with his men, Last Supper. And after uh, the meal was concluded, Jesus dismissed Judas Iscariot, who would betray him, And all he had was was those 11 men. And he spoke to them, encouraging them, instructing them. What we call the upper room discourse in John 14, 15, and 16. And then, before they left uh, Jerusalem, crossed the Kidron Valley and and started up the the, uh, Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, before before they got there... Uh, Before they left, Jesus allowed his men to enter into a prayer meeting that God the Father 
and God the Son shared together. It was a unique time, and and during that time, in the second section of chapter 17, Jesus prays for these 11 men that are before him. His eyes may have been open, he may have been looking at them, but he was thinking, he was concentrating on the Father. Next week, Lord willing, we will conclude chapter 17 where Jesus is has ex, expanding his, his prayer for those that are going to come to faith through the ministry of these 11, as well as others. And that includes us as well. Um, I'm going to read our, our text this morning uh, before I do so, so I just, you can get the idea of where we're headed. Let me give you my outline. You'll find it in your notes. Uh, this is a this is a difficult section of scripture to uh, uh, to, to to put together. Uh, it, it does not uh, f- flow from point one to point two to point three easily, and so you'll find many different outlines of men. This is mine: the new life God provides; secondly, the new life God protects; and thirdly, the new life God propagates. Let me read the text of Scripture. We're going to look primarily at verses 13 through 19, uh, but we'll look a little bit uh, in front of that as well. So let me begin by looking at the beginning of of Jesus' uh, prayer for his men specifically in the middle of... uh, No, I'll start at the beginning of verse 11. I am no longer in the world, Jesus says. And yet they themselves are in the world, speaking of the eleven. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word. Point number one. The new life that God provides We don't, we don't go through any kind of, of caterpillar soup stage in our spiritual transformation. But the transformation that God provides 
by grace to those who believe actually is a little bit more amazing, a lot bit more amazing than a caterpillar coming out of, or a butterfly coming out of caterpillar soup. Scripture tells us, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that the unsaved person, the natural person, is dead spiritually. Now, that does not mean that a person, apart from Christ, doesn't have any kind of uh, spiritual energies, any kind of spiritual vitality. A person who is an unbeliever may have an enormous appetite for the things of the world, even for religious things. They may be very zealous in their religion. When Paul says that the natural man, the unsaved man, the unredeemed man, is spiritually dead, he means that that person does not exhibit any kind of positive energy at all toward the one, the only, the true, the living God. If you look with me at John chapter 3, Jesus' conversation with the Pharisee Nicodemus, he said this, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's the natural man. He chooses darkness rather than light. He may worship his darkness. But the truth of the matter is, he is a foreigner to the things of God. He is at enmity with God. He is a debtor to God. And the unsaved man can do nothing about that. He is shackled to his wickedness. He is enslaved to sin. So the scriptures reveal to us. He needs something outside of himself to give him what he might think about, what he might dream about, but can do nothing about. He needs someone to reformat him, reformat his heart, um, jumpstart his heart, uh, better analogy, to give him a different heart. And it all begins with God's gospel. It is so mind-boggling that in this natural world, in order to change something, you have to put so much effort and so much energy into it in order to affect that change. And yet it is with a simple message We've boiled it down before to, to four simple words. Jesus died for sinners. That simple gospel message. Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. By that simple message, 
There can be transformation like that. More magnificent, more amazing, more radically transforming than caterpillar soup into a butterfly. Verse 14 of our text. Well, let me, let me, let me, start, um, let me, let me start a little bit before that. In, in, in verse 12, um, um, it's not verse 12. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Oh, it's verse 14. It is verse 14. Jesus says, I have given them your word. And in verse 6 of chapter 17, Jesus says, They have kept your word. This is the means of their transformation. God's word. Verse 14 again. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Well, here you have this individual the natural man is, is born in the world of the world. He is enfolded in the world. He is shackled in sin and in his wickedness, not only by uh, means of, of being identified with Adam, but by his own choices. And then, when the transformation takes place, God gives him a new heart, removes the debt that he owes, uh, changes the relationship, forgives him so he's no longer at enmity with God. He, he is taken out of the realm of the world, out of the realm of darkness, and he is brought into God's everlasting light. Well, the world looks at that kind of an individual and says, you're, you're a traitor. You're not one of us anymore. You have betrayed our values. Verse 14, I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Jesus was born as a man, but he did not come by way of man's seed. He didn't have the contamination of Adam's sin. He was never one of the worlds. So the world hated Jesus. And those whom Jesus redeems, the world likewise hates in jesus sermon on the mount matthew chapter six uh, i'm sorry chapter five jesus says verse 11 blessed are you when people insult you persecute you falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you and they would persecute jesus in the same way why because you're not of the world you have been spared that you're not a caterpillar anymore crawling around on a leaf 
No, you have been given wings. You're a new creature. You are completely and utterly different. You have undergone a second birth. You are born again. No longer are you of the world and for the world. You are of God. And you are for God. This is the new life that God provides. He gives it as a gift. A gift of grace. You didn't earn it. You may not even have known that it was really what you needed. But God knew all along. And he gifted it to you. Point number two. This new life, this new life that God provides, he also protects. Look back with me at verse 11. Middle of that verse, Jesus prays, I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you uh, have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, verse 13, but now I come to you. I have guarded them. I have protected them. I have been their visible shield, their visible safety net. But that's changed. Now, Jesus is... um, is, is not speaking anachronistically. That is, he's not speaking against chronology, not speaking against time. He is stepping outside of time, and he is looking at the totality of his work, the totality of all who would be redeemed. And he said, yes, I was visibly there protecting them, but now I'm not there. Even though in time, he is still here. He has stepped out of time. He is the one who is outside of time. Now I come to you, Father. These things I speak in the world, verse 13, so that they may have my joy and be full in, and, and, and that joy may be, be full in themselves. Um, we'll speak of the joy in, in just, uh, just a, a minute. Uh, this visible care that Jesus gives to his disciple is changing. He is, he is not going to be there um, just within hours, and so he's praying, Father, y- you protect them. I guarded them. I'm not going to be here anymore. Take care of that, please. And we know that the, the, the Father and the Son send the Spirit in order to do that protecting, guiding work. I brought these two verses to your attention last week when we were looking at verses 11 and 12. From Isaiah 46. Oh, by the way, in your, uh, in your notes, I see that there's a typo. It's chapter 46, verse 4, not verse 6. It reads this way. Even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. God is saying, as you grow up, as you get old, your, your body's going to fail, but not, not mine. I'm always going to be here. I have done it. I will carry you. I will bear you. I will deliver you, he says. 
We find the same truth in Philippians chapter 1. Paul writes, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to protect that which he has invested in. That one whom he has redeemed, he will take us all the way to the goal line. He will provide for us, protect us in every way. Now, end of verse 13. Jesus says, These things I speak in the world so that, for the purpose that, I I, I am telling all of these things to my men. Chapters 14, 15, 16. He's allowed them to uh, listen in to his prayer meeting with the Father. All of these things, Jesus says, I I am saying to them to prepare them for what's coming. Stress is coming. Difficulty is coming. Persecution is coming. Grief is coming. Injustice is coming. But in the midst of that, Jesus says, I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy. Isn't that amazing? Regardless of the circumstances you might find yourself in right now, it is God's purpose, design, and will for you to experience joy, a fullness of joy, full up to the brim kind of joy, so that you live in the overflow of that joy. It's like having enough capital invested that you can live off of just the interest. Oh, that's, that's overwhelming, overflowing joy. Jesus protects us to that degree that we have an overabundance of joy in the midst of of difficulty and stress and pressure and tribulation. John chapter 15, verse 11. These words Jesus spoke uh, just minutes ago. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Author of the book of Hebrews said, chapter 12, um, that that Jesus went to to the cross because of the joy set before him. What? He, He allowed other people to put him to death out of joy. Yeah. Because there this world, all of the struggle tribulation and affliction that we experience is, is, is temporary. Caterpillar soup is temporary. Chapter 16, verse 20. Jesus said to his men just moments prior to this, this prayer, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, 
She has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Jesus provides in that way. The fullness of God's protection brings joy. Second page of your notes. The focus of God's protection is from evil and the evil one. Notice verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, that phrase we'll look at in just a minute, but to keep them from the evil one. If you have the New American Standard text as I do, you'll notice that the word one is italicized. That's the editor's way of alerting us to the fact that that particular word is not in the Greek text. The Greek text literally reads, keep them from the evil. It's, um, it's the, one of the normal words for evil uh, with, with the article, the evil. Keep them from the evil. Does it mean uh, evil things in a rather abstract way or the evil one as the epitome of evil, the devil himself? It could be either. We find the exact same construction in Jesus' uh, so-called Lord's Prayer that actually is the disciples' prayer, the model prayer that Jesus leaves for his men, where he prays in verse 13, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from, same construction, from the evil. Does he, does he mean evil in an abstract sense, wickedness in general, or does he mean the evil one? Yes, Father, keep them from the evil. Keep them from the evil one. A number of times in um, John's Gospel, we read about uh, the evil one, the devil himself, referred to as the ruler of this world. Chapter 12, verse 31. I put these references in your notes. You can look them up later. Jesus says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Chapter 14, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Chapter 16, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Biblical Christianity does not present reality in a uh, uh, good versus evil kind of motif. Uh, or a yin versus yang, or a, um, a light versus darkness, as if both uh, are, are, are equal forces vying for power and control. No, Jesus is Christus Victor. Jesus is the one who is the, the sovereign. He is um, uh, the, the conqueror, he is, he is the one who is always in command. Satan is defeated. 
Satan is vanquished. Satan is the loser. Although, not all power has presently been stripped from him. So we will feel, we will experience his heat on occasion. Turn with me over to uh, to 1 John chapter 5. I need you to see this verse. It needs some explaining, but uh, um, besides that, uh, at face value, it has uh, great um, uh, meaning and import to us right now. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18 begins this way. We know that no one who is born of God sins. Okay, that's going to take some explanation. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him. Let me, let me expand that with, with my own personal amplified version. We know, we are confident of this fact, that no one who is genuinely born again of God, no one who is genuinely a redeemed individual, keeps on sinning. It is a mark of a believer when they are confronted with sin that they repent of that sin. And that confrontation uh, regarding our sin may come by our conscience, by the Holy Spirit, by the Scriptures, by another brother or sister in Christ. That person who is genuinely born again is not caught in a habit of sin. He continues, semicolon, but he, capital H, he, we're talking about Jesus the Son, he who was born of God and the Son was in a sense, born of God. He's called the the only begotten one. This one keeps him. He keeps the redeemed one. He protects, guards, offers a safety net for his own. Now, back to the text. And the evil one does not touch him. Can't touch his eternal soul. He is perfectly protected in divine bubble wrap. There is nothing that the evil one can do to to upset what's taking place in the chrysalis. Verse 19. We know, same confidence, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
those who were redeemed, those who believe, those who have put their trust in Christ, those people that are spiritually changed, transformed, born again, those people are of God. The rest of the world is under the rulership of the evil one. Jesus perfectly protects his own. The new life that God provides, he protects. Thirdly, third point, the new life that God provides, protects, he seeks to propagate. He wants to multiply. Verse 17 of our text. Sanctify them in the truth. Another point of of, um, intercession that Jesus makes. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word, the Greek word um, here translated sanctified is in the same family where we get the word holy. And these two words mean, uh, the, the root of the Greek word means to, um, to hallow. We, uh, we, we, we begin the, the, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Um, Hallowed be your name. Okay? We, we set his name apart. We, we make it holy. We sanctify it. We consecrate it. All those are synonymous words. It, to, to, to sanctify means that we, 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 we set it apart as different and distinct. There's always a purpose. There's always an end. There's always a reason why something is declared or set aside as holy or sanctified. Now, fundamentally, holiness describes the character of God. If you let your eyes go back to verse 11 of uh, chapter 17, Jesus prays in the middle of that verse, Holy Father. He is sanctifying, consecrating God. The purpose for that is that God may be glorified. Fundamentally, holiness Sanctification describes who God is. He is separated from sin, separated unto himself, unto his own glory. When the angels, or rather, when when Isaiah saw in a vision uh, the angels uh, of God and and the Lord filling the temple, do you remember what what the angels said? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It describes who he is, his other than-ness, his distinctness. For the purpose of identifying his glory. Now, derivatively, holiness is, belongs to all that is given to God, all that belongs to God, all that is dedicated unto the Lord. It's used of Jeremiah chapter 1. 
as a prophet, he was set aside, sanctified, hallowed, consecrated, made holy for the purpose that he would be a tool in the Lord's hand as a prophet. Similarly, it's used of the priests. We read about that. It uses the word is uh, applied to Moses' older brother Aaron in Exodus chapter 28. He is consecrated. He is sanctified. He is made holy as a servant of the Lord. In that same text, his garments, his clothing is, um, is, is noted to be holy, sanctified consecrated. It it has a a specific and exact purpose. That clothing is set apart only for the use of the priest, only as they are doing the Lord's work. So as a derivative of who God is in his holiness, there are those things that are dedicated unto the Lord's service. People, even clothing. Now Jesus says uh, here in his prayer to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. We mark as holy, we mark as hallowed and consecrated that which is in accordance with his word. So so to... to, um, Sanctify something in in truth is to set it apart according to God's will and his ways. It it is to, to mark something specifically for the purpose which it was intended. Now, I've put two things in your notes, and this is why... Jesus seeks the Father to sanctify these men. First, they are to be sanctified morally. That is, they are are hallowed, they are consecrated unto purity. A number of passages of Scripture we could could turn to. Um, Let's start with... uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul writes there in the first verse, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. As a changed, transformed, redeemed individual, I am sanctified, hallowed, put, 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 put in a distinct category for God's purposes. I, I'm called out of the world, out of darkness, and I've, I've been called into his marvelous light. Now I am marked by God. I, I no longer live for the world. I live for God. And as a part of that 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 sanctifying process by the Holy Spirit, I am called unto a life of purity, moral purity. Mm, 1 Corinthians, no, 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 no. 
We're just in Corinthians. First uh, Thessalonians chapter four. Jesus says, "This is the will of God." Oh, we want to know what the will of God is. Well, here it is, black and white. This is the will of God: your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. You're different. You've been hallowed by the Spirit. When a person genuinely comes to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within them, which is why it is so egregious that we... We, we not sin. We are violating the very person of the Holy Spirit, of, of the Trinity that is living within us. That must not be. I, uh, I have been called out of the world of, 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 of darkness and depravity. I, I have been called to honor God. So we read in Book of Romans, chapter 13, uh, chapter 12. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, sanctified in the truth renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I'm sanctified morally. I'm called unto purity. And secondly, I'm, I'm sanctified missionally. I am called unto propagation. Back in our text, look at verse 18 of chapter 17. Jesus prayed, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Again, Jesus is not speaking uh, acronistically. He's he's not going against time, um, but he's stepping outside of time. He hasn't commissioned these men in time and space quite yet, but he's stepping outside of time. He's speaking to the Father, both of whom are, are outside of time. He said, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I have done this. So purposed and focused was he on actually doing it in time and space, which he did. He said, as you sent me into the world, dot, 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 the Greek word for the word sent has a noun. Let me tell you what the noun is, because you know the word. The Greek word is apostolos. It's dug into the English language and and is our word apostle. An apostle is simply a sent one. And Jesus acknowledges here that the Father apostolized, if I can coin a new word, The Father apostolized Jesus, sent him into the world. So, Jesus said, in like manner, I also have sent them into the world. 
Jesus is going to be sending, apostolizing these 11 men. They will become the apostles. Now, to be a capital A first century apostle, you had to know Jesus, walk with Jesus, witness the resurrection of Jesus. Um, uh, those criteria, even, even the Apostle Paul met, even though he was an unbeliever, while Jesus was walking here on, on planet Earth. He knew about Jesus, um, was very familiar with Jesus, and saw him in his resurrected state. These men were sent out by the Lord. And it was by means of their testimony and their, um, their uh, proclamation of God's gospel that other people came to faith, which is what we'll talk about next week from verse 20, where Jesus says, I, I, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, the, the 11 standing in front of him, but for those who would believe in me through their word. God is very interested in promoting what he has done in Christ, his gospel message, through his people. That's our task. That's our mission. We have that responsibility. 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes this, We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. Indeed, he is. God is making his appeal to unbelievers through us who have been redeemed, who have come to know the Lord, who are walking with him. We are the changed, different, transformed people. Conclusion. Um, there, is, there is much to say uh, from this text of Scripture that time does not allow us to, uh, to, to cover at um, uh, one, one, uh, one setting. Suffice it to say here that the work that God does takes us out of the world and changes us to, to, to such a degree that we are now charged encouraged, um, commanded to be part of God's uh, work of redemption in the world. Now, we will sometimes float and meander our way uh, through this life and our obedience to the Lord, but that is our calling. And it is to a long obedience in that direction to be his people of purity, propagating his message that we are called. I conclude talking about butterflies. If you've done any study in the past um, about monarch butterflies, you know how absolutely unique they are. Um, they migrate. 
they migrate. Uh, that's unique uh, for an insect. Uh, most insects live, you know, right here. The flies live right over your dinner plate. Um, now, there's lots of, lot, lot, lots of, lots of creature, creatures, particularly birds, that migrate. But monarch butterflies migrate 3,000 miles. You've probably watched butterflies, and, and um, monarch butterflies are just like every other butterfly. They go like this, and, and then they go like this, and then they go like this, and they might make a little bit of progress up and down and over this way. And isn't that just like us? But you know what really makes monarch butterflies unique? They migrate those 25 to 3,000 miles over the span of four, sometimes five generations. So that one generation might get from point A to point B, the next generation from point B to point C, the next generation from point C to point D, and the final generation maybe, maybe add another generation from point D back to point A. How do they know how to do that? By chance? <laughs> Not a chance. It's a long obedience. Uh, sometimes with a little zig and a little zag. But it's a long obedience in one direction to which we are called. Forsake sin. Run from it. Repent of it. Seek to be used of the Lord to proclaim his message to the people around you. How many of you have unsaved friends? I find most of my friends, my unsaved friends, are at the pool I swim at. And I try to go with regularity at the same times. So I have a better chance of bumping into the same people. I've had opportunities, I pray for opportunities, to talk with those people about the Lord. Because they need it. They're lost. Some of those people I love very much and eagerly want them to know the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I can, I, I, I can, I can only imagine what, was on, what, what Jesus' face looked like while he was praying this prayer. I, I wonder if his, his brow was furrowed. I wonder if his voice was intense. I wonder if he was looking at his men 
And as he was praying to you, Father, uh, how he was, he was longing for them to experience his joy in the midst of, of, of grief and injustice, persecution. I, I wonder if, if, if he was longing for them to, to, to be courageous, to, to speak what truth they know. Oh, there was, not, there was lots of stuff they didn't know. None of these men went, went to rabbi school. None of these men went to anything like a, a Bible college or anything like that. They simply knew you. And that was enough. Father, give us the same kind of courage and boldness to speak your word to the lost, dying, confused, angry, hostile people around us. That word, your gospel message, as simple as it is, is powerful enough to change lives. And do far more than caterpillar soup would ever do. Amen.